Thank you so much for joining our Gen Church Wa podcast. We are a community of everyday people committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. It's 2022. We have so many exciting events, gatherings, and opportunities for you around Generations Church. If you'd like to learn more about these opportunities, these events, these gatherings, head over to mygenerations.church to check them out. So what does it mean to be spiritual? How does followership of Jesus look in an era of postmodernism and deconstruction? We're getting back into our series on 1 Corinthians called Masterclass, where the Apostle Paul will help us navigate our cultural moment. Let's respond to the scripture and spirit together. But we're going through 1 Corinthians, so that's the the Masterclass series. So I'm going to read a few verses. It's in chapter 6. We're starting with verse 12 and going through verse 20. The first one says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that our bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sin is a person's comments are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom have you received from God? You are not your own. You were brought. You were b- brought at a, pri- at, a ah, at, at a price. Sorry, my screenshot went away there. However, honor the God with your bodies. Thanks. Amen. I do like to do that previously on catch you up to speed. We are jumping back into our series on master class. And so uh, for those of you who may have missed or just joining us for the first time, that is totally okay. What we are doing is we are using 1 Corinthians as the basis uh, for this series. We started this series back in October and now it is January 2022. And so the premise of this series is using the book of 1 Corinthians to help us understand that God wants us to not just be a master at like cooking or parenting or uh, maybe how to train your dog, but really the goal for us is to be a master at all of life. And we learn from the master of life, that is Jesus, and Paul followed Jesus and studied Jesus, his will and his way, and he shared the way of Jesus with the world. And what Paul did is he traveled around and he started new churches, and one of the churches that he started was the the church in Corinth, and Paul left for a time, and he heard these reports about some things that were happening And their life was not aligning with the way of Jesus. So he wrote back to them and saying, hey, remember the way of Jesus. And so he writes to them about God, sex, marriage, politics, philosophy. 
And this series as a whole covers a lot of those topics. And it's not what Kyle has picked and chose to, to kind of the hobby horse of this is what I think needs talked about based on our cultural uh, moment. But this is what Paul was talking about with the church in light of what was happening with them. I'm convinced we cannot relegate spirituality to personal preference or a just tell me what to do. In other words, just do what you feel is right or what tradition says is right. We must be informed and conform to the likeness of Jesus. And so that is Paul's conviction too. Meaning the way of Jesus is not just moral advice or a recipe for private spirituality. Learning to think about all of life through the gospel. An announcement about Jesus that opens us up to a new reality. And fitting. A lot of slogans thrown around right now. New year, new you. The reality is that we have access to a new reality in Christ. And so Paul's conviction is that it's not to kind of make up a new life on your own, on your own strength, on power. Decide for yourself what is right for you to do. In fact, it's more or less become who you are. Because in Christ, you have a new reality. You are a new creation. You are a new person. And our everyday challenge is to help our life catch up to that reality. So Masterclass helps us integrate faith, family, and mission into all of life. And the reason 1 Corinthians is the best book, I think, for us to use for this Masterclass is because it's a letter written to a church in a city that was forced to reckon with competing values, morals, and ethics. And we are no different. Alan Noble and Disruptive Witness describing kind of our cultural moment, he calls it the distracted age. And in its effect says this, it's easier to ignore contradiction and flaws in our basic beliefs. We are less likely to devote time to introspection. And conversations about faith can easily be perceived as just another exercise in superficial identity formation. In other words, even as we look ahead to this new year, it is really easy for us to adopt the branding of Jesus without becoming like him. It's really easy for us to talk about Jesus, promoting him, and even attempt to demonstrate him without becoming like him in our core. Because when we know in our core that we are a loved child of God, and our attachment is secure in Christ, then we can promote, we can demonstrate. More than that, I think we can live our everyday faith well. And so we're right in this section from chapter 5 through chapter 7, where Paul is dealing with two issues, but stem from the same problem. First, at the beginning of chapter 6, he's dealing with legal matters. Two Christians that are suing each other over property or fraud or something of the like. And the second issue is sexual integrity. And Paul referenced both of these, which seem kind of interesting, that legal matters and sex are handled together with the same underlying principle. But Paul references both of these in light of the reports he has received. And he shares his response to these legal matters 
and sexual integrity in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Meaning, what the good news of Jesus implies about the future has direct application to the present. So let's start with disputes or a grievance between two believers. Paul is aghast, which you can see by his line of questioning in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 1. He says, if any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? He goes on and lists a bunch of questions. And he just cannot believe that two Christians who have a dispute between one another feel like it's better to go to court than settle person to person. There's a, a civil disputes that are being settled in public court, rather in the church community, directly between believers. The term here that Paul is referring to when he talks about lawsuits and disputes is civil cases such as legal possession, breach of contract, damages, fraud, or injury, and not criminal cases. So as we look at this passage, it's important to note the distinction. What Paul is referring to is these civil type cases, these disputes between believers, believers who are like family, they've developed a robust community and are doing business with each other, are supporting one another, but we know relationships are messy. They're difficult. And sometimes we're not always the best at communication. So lines get crossed. We, we think we expect one thing and something else happens. And so what happened in this case is some lines got crossed. And someone took it upon themselves and felt powerful enough to say, you know what, I'm going to prove my case in front of the city courts. And so Paul isn't saying never go to court, never, never sue there might be a time, but what Paul is talking about in this case is money and property issues. Money that was loaned and potentially never paid back. He's not talking about criminal cases, such as drunk driving or, or rape or, or murder. He's not talking about, he's talking about the relational dealings that we have with each other. Because the goal is to build a robust community where we support, where we loan things to one another, where we care for one another, where we support one another. So God has set up the government in order to order the world as a whole, but the church should have such an other-centeredness and a posture of becoming like Christ that when issues arise, such as communication lines getting crossed, that these believers can go to each other directly instead of going to court. And the problem should be dealt with together, with each other. But there is an issue. And how these believers have chosen to deal with it undermines a point that Paul will make at the end of the chapter. That they have been joined together with Christ and therefore represent Him. Become what you are. Meaning, when we are dealing with each other in relational matters, we remember that we are one in Christ. That we are of the same body that we are to be for one another and other-centered. So that in these dealings, in these lines of miscommunication and difficulty, that we can actually approach one another with love and charity and other-centeredness. That we seek the well-being of the other person, not how do we take advantage of this situation. 
So the failure here is on multiple fronts. The two parties are suing each other. They're not acting Christ-like. And the church then is not stepping in and saying, here's how we handle family business. People aren't coming together and saying, hey, we should deal with this face-to-face. We should be able to discuss this and remember that we are one in Christ. And Paul ties this problem to a future reality. Don't you realize that you will judge angels? We don't have time this morning, but the Bible teaches that when Jesus returns as king, the church will somehow participate in his judgment on the world. See, because sin has entered the world, the way the world is ordered has almost been flipped upside down. And what Paul wants us to remember is remember our place. We have authority and power given to us in the name of Jesus. Therefore, we can deal with each other and love uh, with, with love and good charity, but also we have a proper place in light of eternity that we will be able to judge the world and participate in that. Paul's going to pick up on this creation theme a little bit later, but the order of creation is God, humanity, and then all of creation. But what happens is when our lines of communication get crossed, When things become difficult, we allow other influences and other things to flip that reality and take precedent over our authority and our love and our attachment to each other through Christ. So Paul is saying that the problem here of suing each other isn't bad ethics, but bad theology. Their attachment to their possessions is greater than their attachment to Christ. In any instance of litigation, the goal is to achieve personal victory. Paul states emphatically, as he can, that the outcome of the present case is already known. No matter who actually wins the lawsuit, whether the plaintiff or the defendant wins, it doesn't even really matter who is right. It's a defeat for both parties, with the church as a whole becoming the real loser. They were defeated the moment the legal proceedings began since its initiation served as a testimony to the church's failure to resolve the conflict as a healthy family would be expected to do. See, there's a lot of division in our world. You know this in your life, in your workplace, in your family members who who aren't necessarily believers. Scroll on social media for a little bit. We don't do conflict well. We don't handle differences of opinions well, and even matters where there is, seems to be a more clear right and wrong, we don't always handle that well. And in fact, I would say, I'll say it rather bluntly, we handle it poorly. <laughs> the church is supposed to be different. The church, the, what, to become what we are, to, we have been shown love and grace by the person and work of Jesus. Therefore, that should shape how we interact with others. The implication is that you sacrifice your right in this dispute for the sake of public witness. You sacrifice your personal win to communicate the grace and love of Jesus to a watching world. And this idea hits us hard. We do not like that. I'm competitive, I like to win. The idea of winning entices me. I like to be right. 
But if I take this passage seriously, even if I have the right and am and in the right, my concern should be eternity. And who I am in Christ should shape my actions presently. So we are more familiar with being entitled to fairness and our rights than the idea of sacrifice. And in this case, Paul encourages these believers who have a probably a valid and legitimate dispute to say, set your dispute aside for a moment and look at eternity. Look at your public witness. And in light of your public witness, reframe your experience. Because you are one in Christ, settle this dispute like family, like believers who can go to one another and settle this fairly and rightly. But when you step outside the family, you're communicating that Christ's power and his Holy Spirit within you is not sufficient to settle disputes. Let's personalize this. Paul's point is that whether you win or lose, the action itself is already at a loss. Even if the verdict is in your favor, you've played by rules set in the world. Meaning, by enduring undeserved injury, we actually enter into the meaning of the cross. Let me stress this. This believer is, a, is believer against believer and does not apply to all situations, but it does apply to situations we would consider civil. Your attachment to Christ must be greater than your attachment to money or property or rights over and against another. Unless you think Paul is singling out a particular sin, Paul goes into kind of one of his famous lists. Because you may be going, oh, cool, that's not me. That's, that's not my issue right now. Well, Paul says there's a greater principle at play. It doesn't matter this sin. You must step into the lens of the cross. You must step into your attachment with Christ and live in response to that. So Paul moves into a list of action. Proving there is no room for an us versus them mentality. And you may wonder, where does this list come from? As he goes into um, verse 7, he says, uh, As it is to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat. Why have you not been wrong? Why have you not been cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the, God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, no greedy people, no drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Paul is referring back to standard code from the Old Testament about how God's chosen family is preserved and God's character displayed to the world. The idea is that the Corinthians stop deceiving themselves. The wicked, those outside of Christ, will not inherit the kingdom. And if sin persists, a question must be seriously considered. Have you really believed? Are you really attached to Christ? Or are you simply redefining right and wrong with religious excuses and overtones? But if wrongdoers and unrighteous people will not inherit the kingdom, it is natural to ask, 
Who will inherit God's kingdom? Who will have a place with God in eternity as rightful heirs with Christ? The answer is those whose faith commitment to Christ leads them to reject immoral, greedy, idolatrous behavior, which marks the lives of others. And more precisely in this context, those who do not wrong and cheat others and who would prefer to suffer righteously than to subject their brothers and sisters to injustice of unrighteous courts, providing encouragement to the sister to Corinthians to follow Paul's difficult advice. Those who choose to suffer wrong are the kind of people who inherit the kingdom. And it's such a curious paradox. And as we look at this, we might be wondering, and I have some of those tendencies in my own heart. I tend to be a little more greedy. I tend to put things in the place of God. That's what idolatry is. I have impure thoughts, and I've even got some impure actions. And if these type of people cannot inherit the kingdom, who then can be saved? To this, I say again, that those whose faith commitment to Christ leads them to accept that they are loved and valued. Those who are baptized into him and who have that. And then out of that connection, out of that attachment and love, begin to live and reject the immoral, greedy patterns that we see here in the Corinthian church. See, Christians have been set free from the bondage of sin. You do not have to sin when you've been baptized into Christ and been given the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives you power to say no and to say yes to God's will and way in every aspect of your life. But yet, we must do that as we step and as we live. We must accept that freedom and resist the encroachments of evil continually. See, the Corinthians, they are clean before God. They've been washed. And this is only part one of Paul's threefold description about their conversion. He talks about this spiritual transformation and the baptism that signifies it by that word washed. They've been washed. Secondly, they've been sanctified. They've been separated from a godless lifestyle, having received a holy status. They've received their adoption papers. Again, become what you are. You are a loved child of God, capable of living His will and His way in every aspect of His life, according to the power of the Holy Spirit. And they have been declared justified and righteous in spite of their many vices, set in right relation to God. The Corinthians stand vindicated by God. God has done something dramatic in and for these Corinthian believers. And as people, they ought to live differently, learning to resolve their differences in healthy and edifying ways rather than fighting lawsuits against one another. The indicative implies the imperative. All three actions refer to a break with the old life and the beginning of a new life that leads to a new lifestyle. Three metaphors describe the same reality, namely their conversion. It also describes this kind of temple motif. You are God's dwelling place. When you've been baptized into him, the spirit of God resides in you, meaning you can live his will and his way in every aspect of your life. And the goal is not to, to hide 
imperfection, but to open yourself up where you are weak, where you are struggling, and allow God to transform, not playing to the, I need to change so that my Heavenly Father will be happy, but recognizing that your Heavenly Father is already happy and delighted in you, therefore you can change. And you want to represent Him well, and out of that love and belief in Christ's power and the power of the Spirit, that is what will produce the change. Your willpower is not sufficient, but Christ's power is sufficient. And when you recognize that, when you see that truth for what it is, it will show up in how you relate to others. It will show up in how you submit all areas of your life to Him. If you thought we were just stopping with legal matters today, we'd just get into a little bit more difficult subject to the issue of sexual integrity, or in this case, the Corinthians, the lack of it. See, there were a number of people sleeping around in the church. One guy and his stepmother and a number of other people were still worshiping at the local temples. And a part of that practice uh, of worshiping, we, we, we worship here. And one of the ways we worship is we sing songs. One of the ways that, that the Greek culture they worshiped was sleeping with temple prostitutes. But not only that, there were people in the church who were saying, oh, that's fine. They were saying, hey, we are free in Christ. We have been cleansed. We have been washed. Therefore, we can kind of do whatever we want. And it's fine because God's grace is bottomless. Right? It's fine. And Paul is saying, it's not fine to sleep with temple prostitutes. Because what they are doing is they haven't really embraced who God is and what he has done for them. What they are embracing is their version of right and wrong. And with the gospel in hand, he just shows how wrong-headed this kind of thinking is. If you think Paul only applies this to sex, he just applied it to legal disputes, and we'll apply it to food here soon. Before I get into how, what Paul does as he addresses this issue, and how he applies the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to it. I should pause here. Paul is addressing Christians. People who have said yes to Jesus. Meaning, if you are not a Christian, or exploring Christianity, it's important for you to know the principle behind the practice of sexual integrity. Following Christ will, maybe initially or eventually, See your sex life submitted to Christ. Your bedroom life to Christ. See, following Jesus is stepping into making him Lord of your life. Meaning saying every aspect, he has control, he has say, he has sway. And what happens is when you go from not being a follower of Jesus to being a follower of Jesus, you're saying yes to that reality. And so I understand there may be some of you here this morning or some of you online who haven't quite made that step yet. So as you hear these words, you hear the weightiness of the law of, I should see that, that's what's wrong with Christians. I should just do more, be more. And, and I, if you are not ready for that yet, good news is I'm not imposing the law on you. What I am saying is there can be freedom found in Christ that allows you to know that he loves you and you can be attached to his will and his way, which is the best will and way for humanity. In Christ, he shows us how to be truly human. And when we begin to understand and step into that, there will be freedom. There will be 
chances are, if you are not a follower of Jesus, you have some brokenness in your life. And those of us who are followers of Jesus, we go, yes, we have some brokenness too. But part of following Jesus in the life of Christ is that mending of that brokenness over time with others, with God. And so our hope is that you say to, yes to Jesus to experience the fullness that God has for you. And stop trying to do and define your life on your own terms. But just know that in saying yes to Jesus, you are saying yes to turning all of your life over to him. And I know that may be scary or intimidating, but there will be people here in this room and who are watching us online who are a part of Generations who will say that is the best decision you can make because though you might not be able to see it, how all the dots get connected, how the things get worked out, that God can bring restoration and wholeness to the brokenness of your life. So yes, it is worth it. It is not perfect. Or there, again, we just talked about legal disputes. You're saying yes to suffering at times. You're saying yes to hardship at times in exchange for the way of Jesus because that is the way of Jesus because on the other side of death is resurrection. On the other side of death is new life. Paul begins showing how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changes one's life, everyday life, including sex. He says, remember, first of all, Jesus died for your sins, including the ruin of broken relationships that's caused by sexual misconduct. And so if you're a Christian, sexual integrity is one of the main ways that we respond to Jesus' love and grace. Paul reminds them that just as Jesus was physically raised from the dead, so our bodies will be raised from the dead. Which means this, if your body is being redeemed, made new by Jesus now and in the future, then what you do with your body now matters. And it matters a lot. It's not yours to do with whatever you want. And we're going to get to this idea that your body is not your own next week. Again, this is going to be a theme that Paul picks up on. But once again, he pulls from the Old Testament by saying, to become one flesh. See, sex creates attachment that's deeper than a physical exchange. In this case, Paul communicates that sleeping with people at the temple, no matter how free you are, enmeshes you with another and lessens the gravity of covenantal commitment in marriage and love and joy that one can experience. Paul is being super clear. Being a follower of Jesus involves no compromise when it comes to sexual integrity and fidelity. Now, this is real frustrating to people who define themselves um, by sex and by gender on this side of Freud. We identify ourselves often, even those of us who are living everyday life, by who we sleep with and who we don't. But when we limit ourselves, when we limit who we are, when we limit our identity to just who we sleep with, we actually settle for a lesser version of humanity. Sex is, and your gender are only one aspect of who you are. God has created all of you. Your brains, your giftedness, your skill, who you're attracted to, who you're paired with as well. And when we simply reduce ourselves to our sexuality, we settle for a fragment, a fraction of what it means to be human. 
Earlier in the passage, Paul declared that at some point we will judge angels. So you have authority in Christ. You have a place with God forever. And when you limit yourself to just who you sleep with, what you do is you rob yourself of that authority that Christ has given you. And there's a freedom that is found when your identity is not found in the bedroom, but is found in the authority of Christ, what's found in the family of God. And so three questions arise as we kind of look at this. What if I don't define sexual misconduct in the same way Paul does in his list? To this, I'd say let's schedule a meeting and talk because there are a lot of nuances to this. And let me just say that's okay. We draw a wide scent here at Generations to say it's okay for you to bring your questions and concerns. To say as I read this passage, I'm not sure I like this or agree with this. That's okay. Remember, earlier in legal disputes, I said it's time to have a conversation to deal with this fairly and charitably. That's what we want to do here. And so let's have that conversation because passages like this have been weaponized and caused much trauma. And so it's worth looking at this together, sincerely, with a love that says, even if we don't come to the same point or the same conclusion, we're still going to practice unconditional, uncompromising love and goodwill and serve one another. Because that's what it means to be one in Christ. Next, you may wonder, I've got sexual misconduct in my past. Am I disqualified from inheriting the kingdom? Am I disqualified from the family of God? And maybe even you ask the question, I've got sexual misconduct in my present. Am I disqualified? At a first glance, that passage earlier that says these type of people will not inherit the kingdom of God may make us believe and hang our head. Yeah, that's me. I'm out. I'm outside the family. Let me just say, you are not disqualified. You're not subject to a lesser class. Because if these people are out, then obviously we all are out. No, you are so beloved by God that he gave up his body on the cross to help and make you, give you a new life. I know right now you may feel pressured to go after a new year, a new slogan. And you may wonder, man, can this be it? Could I just get it right this year? Let me just say the gate to entry is not how many hoops you can jump through. It's not how many boxes you can check. It's not how many books you can read. It's not how many New Year's resolutions you can achieve. You have access to the family of God because of the person and works of Jesus. Your adoption papers have been signed and sealed. Will you extend your hands and say, yes, I take them? Will you join Maybe in baptism. That's why next Sunday is a baptism. It's a powerful Sunday when we do that. If you've never said yes to Jesus in baptism by immersion, we encourage you to do that because that is saying yes to those adoption papers. It's a great way to start the year responding to the news that you are loved despite your past, your fears, your mistakes, and maybe even your present sin. God loves you precisely as you are. 
He moves towards you. For those of you who have maybe been baptized and said yes to Christ, you have newness. You have a new reality. And the encouragement is to become what you are. Your total life open to change because of Jesus. And to live that way in the midst of a watching world. Because the way we live the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in our everyday life points to something about who we belong to. For we are not our own. The New City Catechism, a tool that we use for our kids, um, asks the first question, what is our only hope in life and in death? And I love this first answer, that we are not our own, but belong to God. That is our hope. That is our will and our way that we are not our own, but that we can belong to God, that we belong to God. So are you living the way of Jesus? A great tool that we have around generations to help us live that will and that way in the everyday things of life is our values. So for those of you in the room, I'll have you look over here to our fabulous values wall. To those online, know that you can search our website and get those. But I'm actually going to work backwards, drive some of you crazy for a moment. The reason we have our values is as a functional tool to help us live who we are in the everyday things of life. I said I'm going to start backwards. The reason I'm going to start with send over stay is because every single place you go, where you live, work, and play, you are a sent person, a loved child of God, precisely there where God has placed you, visible to others. And how you receive that love and live that love in proximity to others will communicate something about the love of God that you have received in your life. It shows up in how we interact and communicate with others, legal disputes. It shows up in how we talk about sex and gender. It talks about how we deal with our coworkers and relationships. And the beautiful thing is that we know that as we live life in front of others, that we aren't perfect, but Jesus was perfect. Therefore, with confidence, we can say we're a work in progress. It's progress over perfection. And we know that what is changing us is God's beautiful big story in Jesus that says we are loved and his love overcomes our sin and roots out our sin and changes us from the inside out. And as we do this, as we recognize and we live that change, we can be gracious. We can give and live generously. We can give over get with no strings attached because we have freely received. And we know we're a work in progress. We, we know we're not alone because we've got a community of people who are on that journey with us. And when the going gets tough, and when we're not sure we have enough or can be enough, we have the Holy Spirit reminding us that it's not by our own willpower, our own might. It's not only by our self, it's not by our self-achievement, but it's God's Spirit dwelling inside of us that reminds us of the good gift and the childhood and the family that we have received in Christ by putting spirit over self. And so maybe, you know, it's a popular thing to adopt a word for a year. And maybe you've thought about that, maybe you haven't. But my encouragement to you would be to become what you are. And maybe use one of these values to help you live the way of Jesus. 
in every aspect of life. And watch everything from relationships to sex to work to how you think about food and what you put in your body to how you think about the resurrection, how you think about church and the gathering and gifting of believers. And not just how you think, but how you live it. May we live it well. Because we are a community of everyday people who are committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. Let's pray. God, you are good, and I'm thankful for that goodness that is Jesus. I pray that as we continue to talk about difficult passages, such as the one we looked at today, as we hear those words, God, that we don't feel shame or guilt, but we recognize that we can be made clean, that we can have a place of honor, and that we can have the power that your Spirit provides. Help us say yes to you and walk in that reality. God, if we've messed up in the past, if, if we feel like we've blown it right now in the present, may we take this time over the next two songs to recognize we are loved, we are valued, we are not forgotten. And we can have that freedom of that truth and experience that in our everyday life because of you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.